Hi, I'm Alana Gallo. I'm a teacher, a mom to four, and the founder of Play, Learn, Thrive. Join me as I chat with real parents and experts as we explore all things play and child development. It's time to take the focus away from you and put the responsibility of playtime back into your kiddos' hands. So if you're tired of planning, leading, and facilitating play sessions, you've found the right place. Each week, we'll explore the importance of play and how it supports child development, along with simple ways to incorporate play in a purposeful way, so you can raise confident, self-motivated kids who enjoy playing independently. Hey guys, I'm Alana. I'm here this week with Dr. Sarah Bren. She's a clinical psychologist, and she's going to introduce herself. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist. My my specialty is in um, sorry, <laughs> my specialty is in parenting support and family therapy, and I do a lot of work with children, adolescents, parents, everyone in the family throughout the timeline of development. So from kind of birth all the way up to the teen years, um, I support families. Awesome. So I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording about um, attachment, and that's something that you are super passionate about. And I would love for you to start off talking a little bit about that. I think there's a lot out there um, about the concept of attachment and how important it is, but I'm not sure that everybody really understands what that means. Absolutely. I actually think it's so funny because it's a word that everyone hears, but people use it in different ways and it means different things for different people. So I think it's always really helpful to just clarify, like, what does attachment mean? And when I'm talking about attachment, I'm talking about the psychological theory of attachment, which is a child's biological hardwired drive to form a bond with their caregiver that keeps them safe, that like allows them to survive. And the reason why this is so important is, one, because it's hardwired, it is something that is going to be like a lens through which the child experiences the world. They're going to be, every motivation they have, every risk they take, every person that they look to is going to be, all of that is going to be through this biological drive for safety. And so we can understand a lot of children's behaviors including play, um, from this perspective. Because if a child is feeling safe and secure, securely attached to a caregiver, then they are able to relax because their their brain is not going to go into fight or flight mode. Their brain is saying, okay, I have this, I have this attachment, this connection to this person who's going to keep me safe. I can relax. I can play. And Conversely, if we aren't able to act as a secure base for our child and we aren't able to have them develop this sense of safety and security and reliably depend on us for love and support and all kinds of important things like that that we give to our kids as parents, then it's really hard for kids to play because biologically they have to worry about survival first. Mm-hmm. So how would somebody, what would be your recommendation for parents, I guess, especially new parents or parents who are new to this idea? What are some ways that you can build attachment? Is that the right way that you would say yeah. it? Build attachment from birth um, so that kids do feel secure enough to kind of explore the world on their own. Like, are there specific strategies that you would recommend, things you wouldn't recommend, what based on your experience? 
Yeah. So first of all, the best part about attachment is because it's biologically hardwired, it's hard to mess it up. Like it's going to happen. More often than not, it's going to happen. As long as we don't interfere with it, um, it's going to happen. And so that's kind of one thing to just put parents at ease. Like this isn't like something that you have to build from scratch. And if you don't do it right, you're messing up your kid. It's more like it's so naturally going to happen as long as we don't interfere with the process and things like, you know, trauma obviously is a big thing that interferes with the process. It kind of has to be at that level of a trauma for it to interfere with this process. Um, so that's just to reassure parents that it's it's hard to mess it up, well, um, <laughs> which is good, like a relief, right? Because I don't want to freak anyone out. Yeah. Um, but it's also like if you, it's helpful, I think, to think about it. Like if a kid is crying because they really, they're really upset and we, we respond to them in a way that tell, like we get in low and we get in close and we use our body language and our tone of voice and our facial expression and our words to let them know that we are there. That is a really, that's going to create a very different experience for a child than when a child's really upset and we're up high above them. We're using body language that's very like authoritarian and power, like showing our power and we're yelling at them to be quiet. Um, that's going to create not a sense of safety, right? That's going to probably be more activating for a child than calming for a child. So when I talk about understanding, like if we understand how attachment informs a child's motivations, we can use that information to help soothe a child, direct a child's behavior, encourage you know certain behaviors and, and discourage others just by using connection. I love that. And it's so it's like not about like, for example, you are giving or you were giving the example of like a child crying. So it's not about like your child's never going to cry, right? Or never going to not get what they want kind of thing. Like that's not necessarily how you build attachment. That's just being permissive. But it, you, so it's like you're letting them feel all the feels, right? And you're sort mm-hmm. of just helping them, helping them process and guiding them through that versus just having that idea in your head, like, oh, if my child's crying, then I have to fix it or I have to, um, or like, I'm like, I'm not attached. I'm, I'm not like developing an attachment with my kid because my kid, you know, is having tantrums or whatever. Like that's totally normal. Right. Yeah. No, attachment happens whether our kids are regulated or dysregulated. In fact, it's in the dysregulated moments that when we connect with them, when they're struggling and show them where I'm here, Mm -hmm. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. Um, And I understand and I hear you. I might still set a limit on the behavior. Like I'm not going to let you hit, I'm not going to let you hit your brother, but I get really angry or whatever the behavior is. Exactly. So it's, we, we, we certainly put limits on behaviors, but the idea that we are present and accepting of their feelings and we will sit right next to them. And we're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, that helps a child to feel contained and safe and it helps them to calm faster. So that's a helpful, like, in the sense of like understanding that our attachment relationship can be a tool to help a child regulate. It's, it doesn't mean that our child will never get dysregulated. That's impossible and not optimal. They need to be able to experience all the emotions. Yeah. 
No, that makes total sense. So then um, what I, I would love to get into a little bit is, so we talk about right developing this secure attachment and the importance, obviously, of developing a secure attachment just as a parent, right? Because like that's, a, you know, that's how we raise healthy, emotionally healthy and mentally healthy like children. But part of that, and I know you mentioned this before, was how when kids can have that secure attachment to their parent or their caregiver, um, it allows them to, it's like very freeing for them in that sense where they can feel more confident in terms of exploring and going off into the world. And part of that is through play and being able to play independently and kind of take like you were talking about taking those risks. So I would love to have you talk a little bit more about that and like the importance of that from your perspective. Absolutely. So the way I think of play for a child is it is it is a state of risk taking, right? It is a separation. Yeah. If I'm going to go into my mind and my imagination and create a world of play, I'm technically leaving whether physically or men- or like cognitively or like in my mind, I'm leaving my caregiver in this yeah. moment to go be off on my own and explore the world. And that's super healthy. We want our kids to do that. But like I said before, like for, it's sort of this hierarchy of needs. If you don't feel safe, your brain can't go do that. It has, it will, it will have to, it will always it will always first attend to survival. Mm-hmm. So if you're feeling anxious, if your needs aren't met, if you're really hungry or you're really tired or you're really cranky and you need, you know, comfort, you can't play because your brain is busy attending to those needs first. So when we have a secure relationship with our child, when they generally feel safe and held and securely attached to us, then playing, separating really is, is tolerable. Um, and so, and, and the act of play really is kind of like, it's kind of like I go off, I, I explore my environment, I take risks and I get further and further away from my caregiver, whether I'm physically doing that. Like you see this on the playground all the time. You'll see a kid kind of go off and play and then they'll sort of come back and check in and fill mm-hmm. back up. And then they go off and play again. And maybe they have to look up at their caregiver and there's their fill up and then they can play a little bit more, but then they have to come back and check in. And then they go off again. And what they're doing is really they're exiting the safe space, the secu- what we call the secure base. You, the parent, you're the secure base. They, they leave you. They separate from you. A natural and appropriate a level of anxiety will mount the further away from you they are or the longer... Oh, the longer the period of time they're away from you, once they kind of hit a tipping point, a threshold where they can't tolerate that anxiety anymore, again, healthy, normal anxiety, they come back and they refuel. And that calms their anxiety, they, re, they, they reset, and then they can go off and play again. And so having that, if you, but like imagine a kid at the playground coming back to refuel and you weren't there. Mm-hmm. That kid's not going to go back off and play again. That kid is going to be in a state of panic. Yeah, they can looking find for you. that, looking for that connection, and that's a metaphor too, because I mean that happens in real life in on the playground, but like that also happens sort of metaphorically in their world of play. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. So, what about kids? So, I hear obviously, like I'm all about independent play, right? That's like my whole jam, mm-hmm. um, and I hear a lot of parents who 
talk about how their kids, quote unquote, don't know how to play independently or can't play independently. And I have sort of a view that I feel like that's more because I think the parent doesn't want to let that happen or isn't, hasn't been letting that happen from birth. So their child becomes kind of like Velcroed to them (laughs) because they've never really given them that space and that time away um, to explore. So, can we do you have any thoughts about that? I guess is just like, what about the, you know, parents? And again, you know, every kid is different. So, kids are going to have different tolerance levels in terms of like how much risk they're willing to take. It just from their, you know, their genetic makeup of their personality, right? Mm-hmm. But totally. In terms of like your background and this concept of attachment, how would you help parents navigate that concept of like where the parent is saying like, oh, my kid won't play by themselves or my kid um, you know, can't play by themselves. And a part of me is like, well, I, I usually say, okay, well, do you give them the time? Do you give them the space? What do the, what do the toys look like in your home? You know, do you have open-ended toys or does everything do all the work for the kid? You know, those are things that are going to impact um, their ability and like their growth in terms of being able to play independently. But I'm wondering if you have other thoughts that are more like coming from your background to your experience. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, I think oftentimes it's, it's the, it's a pers- it's a projective Sorry, it's a projection from the parent onto the child, this idea that they, they can't do this or they won't do this or they don't know how to do this. I actually think children are innately born. They are born knowing how to play. Yeah, An infant could play for long stretches of time. It's just that maybe we didn't realize that what they were doing was play. Yeah. So for an infant, looking at a shadow on the wall is play. Yeah. And so... If we allow, so, you know, first of all, to set kids up for success in independent play from birth, which would be wonderful if we know this ahead of time, but most parents don't. So most parents do not know how to set their child up for independent play from birth. Um, And that doesn't mean that an older child can't learn how to play independently. It just may mean that it's going to be unlearning some of the things that we have set up for them accidentally, like totally inadvertently. So as a parent who wants maybe has a slightly older child who's kind of unlearned their ability to independent play, how do we set that up? I think we use the relationship. Absolutely. We use the the attachment relationship to to facilitate that. So remembering that a child is going to be able to tolerate separation from you um, only when they feel safe and filled up, we can use that to fill, we can use that um, ahead of time. So if you want to introduce independent play, for example, to an older child who hasn't really been doing it much, um, you might make a really conscious effort to spend some really quality fill-up time with them before you're going to introduce this sort of separation. Mm-hmm. And so, and and you can do it really slowly, right? This is a, it's like, you know, like any skill, you don't start at the, you know, you don't start at the advanced level. You start with just tiny little baby steps. So maybe that just looks like directing less of their play, mm-hmm. right? So if your child is really used to you entertaining them and coming up with the play ideas and being like, you know, you know, you are a character and you're in, so involved in the play and 
to start being more passive, to allowing them to be more of the like director and lead actor and producer of the play. And you are merely kind of like a play object. Mm-hmm. They have to come up with the answers. And that might look like them coming to you for answers and you'd be like, hmm, I wonder how you're going to figure that one out. Yeah, or, putting you know, it just, on them. Yeah, like, like you don't have to cut them out and be like, this is independent playtime. You have to figure this out on your own. It's more just like you're going to slowly become a smaller presence, but you're still a presence, right? You just take up less space creatively. And then as your child starts to get used to that, then you can start to take up even less space. And maybe you say, I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'll be right back. And you come back, right? And again, this is that that secure base. That's that reliable thing. If you say, I'm going to leave and come back, you come back. Yeah, You're stretching them for maybe a minute. And then maybe you're stretching them for five minutes. And then you come back and maybe it's 10 minutes. And so you're slowly building up their tolerance for the separation from you. Mm -hmm. And all the while making sure that before and after you're filling them up with lots of connected attention. And again, the connected attention doesn't mean you directing the play. It means you just physically being there without any, with, you know, fully present. Yeah, no, I love that. And you talked about right at the beginning when you started talking about this, you mentioned like infants, like babies, newborns, you know, three months, six month old babies who are, who are participating in independent play and what that looks like. And I, that's something that I've always found so interesting is like parents not really understanding that what their child is doing on their own is stimulating enough. Like I find a lot of parents, especially newer parents or, um, you know, just, I guess, yeah, mostly like newer parents who, you know, it's their first or second baby. And they are always asking like, well, you know, my six month old, like I need to stimulate them. And what can I be doing? Mm -hmm. And And I'm like, your, your six month old is stimulated by being carried around the house and listening, like hearing the pots bang and, and being on the floor and look, you know, feeling the rug and, and different textures and, and, all of those things, like even a newborn, you know, first couple weeks of life who, like you said, is like staring, you know, looking at you or looking at a, a contrasting shadow, you know, their eyes are not like fully developed yet. Right. So, or not like they can't see so far, but they see contrast and like that to them is independent quote unquote play. And Absolutely. So often um, I feel like parents often, and this is with the best intentions, of course, because I feel like everything we do is always with the best intention, right? But um, they will like interrupt them, like they're they're staring off at like the shadow on you know on the wall, and we grab a toy and we're like, oh here, like let me jingle this in front of you, mm-hmm. and it's almost like counterproductive because the baby staring at the shadow, they're already practicing their independent like. Um, their ability to entertain themselves um, independently. And then we step in with this like desire to stimulate them. And we're sort of taking away their opportunity to learn, if that makes sense. Yes, 100%. I could not agree more. I think, and again, this isn't a judgment on parents. I, I, I think if I hadn't gone into parenting, knowing what I know about child development, I would have done the exact same thing. I probably did do the exact yeah, same thing. I mean, right? Thing. I, I feel like I've definitely done it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm more aware and I've probably done it less, but I 
you know, it's hard because it's kind of the society we live in. And then you have people coming over and they're like, you know, participating in the child's life and they're doing things and you're like, you're kind of like, how do you, you know, you can't always control obviously what's happening. um, And I definitely, I definitely feel like I've stepped in, in a lot of ways where I should have stepped back instead of stepping in, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I think a mantra for parenting um, is do less and be more present. Um, I think our kids don't actually need us to do all that much for them. Certainly not when it comes to play. Do they need us to soothe them, comfort them, attend to their needs? Absolutely. And when we engage with them in in caregiving activities, like when we're fully present when we're changing their diaper and when we are really sitting with them and fully present when they're feeding or bathing or getting dressed or getting Mm -hmm. ready for bed, that is us really doing for our children, right? Those are the parenting tasks. We don't need to help them play. We certainly can be a presence with them when they are playing, and they can invite us into their play and that can be a really wonderful shared experience. But we don't need to teach a child how to play. Yeah. In fact, our teaching, I think it was Piaget that who's like a you know a major contributor to the field of early childhood education said, don't interfere with your child's or what what was it? It's yeah, it's careful like, what you teach, you may interfere with what they're learning. Exactly. And it's like they will, like you said, from birth, I mean, the kids are, if you look, and this is one of the most interesting things. Um, I don't know if you've read anything by Dr. Peter Gray. Um, oh, I love him. He's amazing. I, I did a panel with him a couple, uh, last summer and just, he talks about how um, a couple, I mean, he talks about so many things, but one of the things I love that he talks about is how kids all over the world, like no matter their culture or their, um, you know, their background, their, their, um, economic status, every kid plays in the same ways. Like ev- you will find every kid pouring water, right? Mm-hmm. Like jumping in a puddle, um, digging a hole with a stick, no matter where, if you don't have a single toy and your kid is out in a field, you know, they will do so many of the same things across the world, no matter where they yes. are. And it's just, to me, it like gives me chills because it's just such a natural thing. And we, especially here, you know, in the land of excess, I feel like, mm-hmm. we feel like it's like, oh, we need more toys. We need more of this. We need more classes. We need more. And I'm like, no, like you said, like less is more. You actually, you need less toys. You need less structured activities. You need less adult-led sports or adult-led whatever classes that you're doing. Literally like put your kid in a field and and like sit down and let them do their thing. And you'd be so surprised at what they come up with and how they find ways to entertain themselves when there's nothing that's there to entertain them. And um I just think that that's it's it's so true. Like we as a, the adult feel like we have to entertain, feel like we have to do and do more and constantly be involved, but we're actually really just interfering. So and like, what, a hey. blessing, what a blessing to really get this, right? Because what does that do? It gives you a really important break as a parent. Like I really genuinely look at my children's play as an opportunity for me to take a break mm-hmm. from parenting. Absolutely. And like, 
I I might still be sitting there, but I'm it's kind of like time for me to sort of just be still and not be momming, right? Because yeah. it's all the other times that I'm working, you know, interacting with my kids, it's a lot of work, right? It's you know, sometimes it's good work, sometimes it's frustrating work, but like, you know, I get their food ready and I sit with them when they eat and I'm changing their diapers and I have a three-year-old and a one and a half-year-old. And so I'm still definitely in the very physically demanding part of motherhood. And so when my kids are playing and I authentically with full permission, because I know it's actually really good for them, allow myself to step back and be like, I'm going to sit and drink my coffee and even maybe even scroll on my phone. Like, (laughs) heaven forbid, like I'm not feeling guilty because one, I know that being present at other times has more value. Yeah. And so that's where I spend my presence with them. And also I don't want to interrupt their play. I don't want them to become dependent on my engagement during their play to facilitate anything. I really want them to solve problems and to take risks and not get it right and bounce back on their own without me swooping in and opening up every jar and um, fixing everything that breaks. And I also think, you know, going back to what you said about, you know, the kid in the field and how you could be surprised. I think that's so, so true. And I actually think, Like if you, a great exercise for parents is to really, next time your child's playing is to really sit on your hands and just observe. Like mindfully and consciously watch them play and notice what they're doing. Start to really look at how they're manipulating things and moving things and solving problems and, you know, experimenting with the weight or the sound or the feel of different things. Like you're going to be amazed at what you really start to see when you sit and watch your child play without participating or interrupting. I love that. And one of the reasons that I got into this whole um, space was because of the lack of ability to problem solve and be creative and, think outside the box and um, manage risk and all this from older kids that I see in my school. And I I was just like, I mean, obviously there's more than one factor, but to me, I was just like the lack of play, the lack of parents just kind of stepping back and letting their kids lead, um, lead the way in their education, lead the way in play. It, that it has had such a, such a, um, detrimental like impact to kids who are currently in their teens and in their early twenties or tweens, whatever, yeah. who, who really can't do these things. And because they've never had the opportunity as a younger child um, and they've always kind of had the, the parent who's entertaining them and signing them up for every class and getting them every toy and, you know, buying all the leap pad, you know, education yeah. things and, and sort of taking away all their opportunities for them to naturally develop or for them to develop what is such a natural thing for them. And it's, I feel like it's really set us back as a society almost, um, yeah. if that makes sense. And it's so true. It's like um, kids really just, they'll surprise you in how they're thinking about things and 
watching them, you know, for example, like build with a block, you know, build with blocks or um, anything like that with open-ended toys where they're kind of having to figure it out. And, you know, you'll see them like pick up a block and then they put it on and the, the tower falls. Okay, well, so the, was the block too heavy? Did I put it, you know, too far to the right? How can mm-hmm. I? And those are things that they're figuring out while they're building and they might not be articulating that. Like, I mean, my older one, who's five and a half, he is starting to kind of talk through his logic, like why he's doing something or or how he's doing it. But my four-year-old or my my two-year-old, they might just be like going through that in their own head without articulating. But if you just watch, you'll still see that same process where they're like, wait, why did that happen? How can I fix it? What can I do differently that might make it do what I want it to do or whatever? And it it really is like such a um, amazing thing to watch. And just knowing that those skills are are so important, so much more important than like academic skills. Like to me, absolutely. your kid's going to learn to read, your kid's going to learn to do math. If they can't problem solve, if they can't ask, raise their hand and ask a question because they're scared of being wrong. Like mm-hmm. they're not going to learn. They're, they're going to be in this, like in this set, in this um, space of just the like, constant stress and fear and, and not actively able to um, be searching for, or be, be able to feel like they can be curious about things. And so that's kind of where I, where I have like a passion because it's, I see the the lack of it in older kids. And I was like, oh my God, I, I can't let my kids like get to that point. Yes. I mean, in my practice, I work with a lot of teenagers, a lot of depressed teenagers. I mean, I'm a psychologist, I'm a clinical psychologist. A lot of people that come to see me are struggling with some mental illness um, or just, you know, low mood or they're struggling. I mean, let's be honest with COVID, I'm seeing just so many more teens that are just, have are struggling with having you know their lives completely upended for the last year but i'm shocked at the level to which the kids in my practice don't know how to play they don't it's not part of their life and if it is it's in organized sports or video games or video games and the idea that it's just so much easier to pick up your phone than it is to go and make something mm-hmm. or try to create something. And and obviously in teenage years and older kids play evolves. It looks different. I mean, even in adults, we're supposed to be playing still too. And what does play look like for grownups? It's a little different, but I actually think, and this is true for my adult patients too. I see a lack of ability to quote unquote play, mm-hmm. like engage with creative pursuits to take risks and to, to do like just for fun, like, Yes, it's surprised don't have a purpose, quote yeah. unquote purpose. Like go on the tree swing. Like my husband like will go on the tree swing because he's like this is so fun. Yeah, but like, even it, it's like my mom, like my mom the first time we had snow at our new house, we hadn't gotten sleds. We have this like really really long driveway and my mom was like, "Oh my gosh, we have to like sl- go sledding." And I was like, "We don't even have sleds." So she like cut up a cardboard box and she's like let's go. And she took my kids out with like cardboard box sleds and they were like, he's like cackling away. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, this is exactly, I feel like what kids need is just like us adults to kind of like 
chill out. Right. But I would even go so far as like your example with your mom in the cardboard box. Yes. Going and getting, going sledding with your kids is amazing and it's fun and it is very playful. But I would, I would argue that the real play that your mom engaged in in that moment was to think, I don't have a sled. What else could be a sled? And I'm going to create this sled out of a cardboard box. That is what I'm talking about when I say adults and and older kids struggle to play. That state of play isn't in like a verb, like, or yeah. I guess more of like a, a way of thinking. Like, how do I create something out of nothing? How do I use my imagination to look at things in a different way? Yeah. That is a really powerful thing to be able to do as an adult. And you kind of need to foster that as a child. And I also think, you know, we were talking about play and all of the cognitive benefits and learning benefits that come from play, which is undisputable. Um, But there's a tremendous amount of emotional learning that comes from play that is what I think is ultimately in my world, you know, working with people with depression and anxiety and self-esteem and relationships, Mm -hmm. all of that is very much related to your ability to play and be playful because to play, for example, when your son is working on building a tower and he's recognizing like, okay, if I put this block over here and okay, but if I put it over here, then it'll stay up, but then it falls down. Yeah. And what does that do for him? That's no, to, there's a wave of devastation that happens. Yeah. And to learn how to experience that loss and that frustration and that anger and mm-hmm. then start to build back up the tower. And what is that? Like, that's a really profound, very small, but very profound experience for a kid to have. Like things fall down and I can build them back up. Mm-hmm. That frustration yeah, tolerance. There's a life lesson right there for you, you know, like what's more important than that? Something Absolutely. will work out the way that you want it to. So you can either give up or you can try again. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously I feel like we would always want our kids to to try again, right? Get back up. We want to build resiliency and that's kind of how the world goes around. I mean, if people shut down and they can't um, handle emotional ups and downs, yeah. uh, life is emotional ups and downs left and right. So that's, that's yeah. definitely, I mean, 100%. And of course my, my mind, like as a teacher always goes first towards academics, but not necessarily, not really, because I feel again, like I said, there's so many more like social and emotional to me is mm-hmm. if you don't have that, you, you can't have academics, you know? So, right. but yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. There's so much that's learned through through kids playing and whether it's by themselves, playing by themselves, playing with other kids, playing with kids, you know, another thing I love to talk about is like the importance of kids playing with other kids who are not their own age. Like, you know, my two-year-old goes over and like knocks over the, the train track and my son's like freaking out and like raising his hand. And I'm like, you know, you, you need to take a step back. It's okay to be frustrated with her or upset, you know, but she's two and she doesn't really understand. And so him having to like realize in the moment, okay, she's younger than me. She doesn't get it. She, you know, she's not doing this on purpose and having to deal with that, um, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. successfully, sometimes not Mm -hmm. successfully. Um, but that's a skill. And so I feel like just having those different age levels and and 
whether it's siblings or just, you know, friendships outside of just the one age is so important for kids too. So Yeah. And there's certainly that's that social emotional learning that comes from playing with older and younger kids, but then there's also um skill development, right? Like my one and a half year old watches my three year old solve problems and then attempts to solve them in ways that my three-year-old never did at one and a half because he was playing by himself. Yeah. And so when my, you know, when younger kids have an opportunity to watch older kids do more advanced stuff, they are less intimidated by it. They take more risks. They have more confidence. And then the older kids have that opportunity to feel like a real role model to know they're being watched and to yeah. know they're being respected by somebody younger than them. And that's great for their self-esteem. So there's just, there's no, no bad side to the, to having mixed age children play together. I think it's so helpful. Awesome. Well, so can you um, let everybody know where they can find you, like your website, socials, any, anything else that, that would be of interest? Yes, absolutely. So my website's drsarahbren.com and I'm on Instagram at, at drsarahbren. And I'm actually working on putting together a podcast of my own, so I would, which I'm certain you'll be on, <laughs> um, called Securely Attached, which is really going to go into kind of um, the fundamentals of how attachment and the parent-child relationship can be such a valuable tool in parenting and understanding sort of the lens of, child development through or understanding child development through that lens. And I have a video on my website um, that talks a lot about attachment theory that um, anyone can go see. It's um, at drsarahbrent.com forward slash attachment. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was like super, super interesting conversation. I'm so glad. Thank you. I was, I loved it. And thank you for having me. Of course. Hey friend. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Play, Learn, Thrive show. I'm happy you stopped by for another week of learning with me. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. I so appreciate your feedback. I'd also love for you to join our community of over 20,000 parents on Instagram. You can find us at Play, Learn, Thrive Kids. 